my name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast and on today's episode I will be taking a look at Bellatar's Swan Song to Cinema with the Turin Horse, a look at Caroline Rowland's official film of the Olympic Games first and also Peter Jackson returns to Middle Earth with The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey. But before I want to get into all that, I um, just want to wish you all a uh, happy new year. I hope you had a kind of a good festive period. Um, I think like a lot of men the world over, I received the James Bond uh, Blu-ray box set for Christmas. And that is why the kind of the Bond retrospective has ground to a halt because I had a sneaking suspicion I was going to be receiving this gift because uh, my girlfriend actually bought it from my Amazon account and has actually yet to uh, give me the money for it. And when I quizzed her on this, um, her, her uh, answer was slightly kind of bizarre because she said, well, you got it, haven't you? Um, which I don't, don't really answer my question as to uh, why I should have paid for my Christmas present. However, that is a minor domestic issue that I will uh, not bore you to death with any longer. Um, I also received a Kindle Fire HD for um, Christmas, which again was ordered from my Amazon account, although I was actually transferred the money for this one. And um, so far, I've been incredibly impressed with this device. I am... Uh, certainly helping Amazon take over the world because I own an Audible account, a Kindle account, and I've recently uh, started uploading music to their kind of cloud music service. And uh, I've been really impressed with it so far. I, um, oh, so I also have a Love Film account, so I can kind of stream films to it. And uh, you know, I've, I've bought some software to help me kind of convert films into a more kind of Kindle Fire HD-friendly format. And uh, it, I've been really impressed with the results so far, and I've got some big trips coming up. And um, I bought the 32... Well, I got the 32 gigabyte version, sorry. And... Uh, I, I certainly can see myself this being a device that I will be using quite a bit. And I, I sort of thought for kind of anyone who has a kind of interesting kind of you know, film and music, that it's a pretty decent device, especially if you kind of do own the Amazon products to uh, stream media to it. But the, the quality as well on the the uh, the kind of the, the film side of things, the the way you can convert files down to it, I, I've been really, really impressed with it. And um, I'm not, I don't really in necessarily believe in watching kind of films and television on kind of mobile devices such as tablets and uh, phones. I, I'm, I'm kind of quite traditional since I think they should be watched on you know kind of the largest television screen possible, really. But uh, in this instance, you know, these trips coming up, I, I can see this being a device that will kind of help me while away the hours. And uh, also, the other um, present I actually bought myself over Christmas was an Apple TV, and I'm going to be talking a little bit more about those in another episode because I've been watching and kind of catching up on my TV series that you can't actually kind of get here in England yet, things like the kind of Breaking Bad Season 5 and things like that, and uh, I've been ma massively impressed with that as well, and I'll be, dis like I said, I'll be discussing that because I'm going to be doing an episode soon on the miniseries Hatfields and McCoys, and that was one of the first series I bought on the, uh, the Apple TV, but... In podcast-related news, uh, the Criterion Roundups for November and December I'm going to be doing as one episode. I've actually changed supplier for my Criterion Blu-rays, and I'm still waiting for the Trilogy of Life to come through. And I actually forgot to order Purple Noon, so um, rather than kind of, you know, wait uh, until next month to come and do this episode, I'm just going to do one, one omnibus episode again for November and December. Also... I recorded an episode with Joachim from the Film Man podcast back in September, actually, and for, for various reasons, uh, I kind of got behind on editing it, but that's almost ready, and that will be dropping on the feed soon. We actually spoke about the uh, Shane Meadows film, uh, This Is England, and I'm just kind of putting the final touches to it, and I'm going to send it off to Joachim so he can kind of give us a nod of approval or if he kind of frowns of dissatisfaction, perhaps, with the, with the final edit, and I, you know, as soon as he's uh, happy with it, I will put it out there on the feed. There's also... Uh, a few other episodes coming up which I'm kind of working through at the moment so there is going to be kind of a, a, 
I, I suppose, a glut of episodes hitting the feed. Also, I'm going to do a 2012 roundup episode. I've just got a couple more films to watch um, from, from 2012 before I can make up my mind. Sad thing is, as well, January's, January's normally a bit of a shite month for films, um, but this month there's so many films coming out in the cinema, uh, things like kind of Les Miserables, um, Zero Dark Thirty, Lincoln, Django Unchained, and all these... Um, I'm really annoyed actually they didn't come out last year because I'd have liked to have kind of perhaps considered them for uh, my 2012 roundup but my rule on that is that the film has to have had a cinema release date within the year and in the UK I don't go with kind of what comes out in America so those films may well be eligible for the 2013 list you know depending on obviously how good they are I certainly can't wait to see I think Lincoln's the one I'm looking forward to the most I am kind of something of a a history nut when it especially comes to American history and I've been um I was especially taken last year with the Ken Burns series on the Civil War, so I'd be quite interested to to see that also. But those aside, I'm going to get on with this episode's reviews. And first up is Peter Jackson's The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. Far to the east, over ranges and rivers, lies a single solitary peak. The dwarves are determined to reclaim their homeland. I like visitors as much as the next hobbit. But I do like to know them before they come. Visiting. Mr. Baggins? At your service. Hmm? <laughs> I'm surrounded by dwarves. What are they doing here? Oh, they're quite a merry gathering. <laughs> so, this is the hobbit. You asked me to find the 14th member of this company, and I have chosen Mr. Baggins. Me? No, 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 no. Hobbits can pass unseen by most if they choose, which gives us a distinct advantage. We'll seize this chance to take back Erebor. Yeah. Here, Mr. Bilbo, where are you off to? I'm going on an adventure. Mithrandir, why the halfling? Why Bilbo Baggins? Perhaps it is because I'm afraid. And he gives me courage. <laughs> So this is your purpose, to enter the mountain. What of it? There are some who would not deem it wise. A dark part has found a way back into the world. Why don't we have a game of riddles? And if it loses, what then? If it loses, precious, then we eat it. If Baggins loses, we eat it whole. So, The Lord of the Rings. I think it's fairly safe to say that they were, and are, I guess, a genuine cultural phenomenon. And certainly I recall a lot of my friends who weren't into kind of fantasy, science fiction types films, loved The Lord of the Rings. And they had an appeal, I think they managed to kind of transcend kind of genre and kind of fanboy geekyism or whatever. And kind of really get under the skin of film, film goes everywhere and they were certainly I, I consider them to be the kind of a Star Wars kind of like phenomenon for a generation and certainly at and I think in time we will see a lot of filmmakers in the future saying that these were the films that inspired them to do what they do in time as well I have gone back to them several times obviously we had the theatrical DVDs and the extended DVDs which were you know I, I remember for a long time thinking those extended DVDs were really as good as that format got in terms of kind of special features and of course we had the blu-ray and Recently, I, you know, I, I got hold of the extended editions on Blu-ray, and we kind of sat down and watched them over the course of the weekend. And it was it was like rediscovering the films again for the first time. It was a genuinely 
wonderful experience, kind of camped out on the sofa for several hours watching them. And after all this kind of kind of died down and rumours began to circulate that The Hobbit was going to go into production, I was, I, I suppose I've changed a great deal in recent years in how I kind of get excited about films. I don't start kind of salivating the second that I see, you know, kind of stills from the set coming in. And The Hobbit was one of those where I was kind of already kind of bored of the story behind it. Of course, we had kind of like, um, Guillermo del Toro was event, uh, originally going to kind of be directing them because of the numerous delays that happened. Um, he ended up only kind of working on the screenplay and actually left with uh, Peter Jackson, who was going to produce and obviously write the films with uh, Fran Walsh and Philippa Bowens. And after kind of Guadalajara left, I was actually quite happy with that because I do like uh, Del Toro's work. But for me, it seemed that Jackson was the man to bring Middle Earth to life. And what one of the things that people don't, I don't, I don't think, talk about enough, obviously when we talk about Lord of the Rings, we, everyone goes on about Gollum and all these kinds of things. But I think all round he manages to, he managed to get incredible performances out about from the cast. And I, I don't think there's a kind of a, an off note in any of their performances I, I they all seem to have such individuality to them and kind of intensity as well which was obviously required for those films and he he, he didn't treat the lord of the rings the novels as being kind of sacred text he did make a lot of changes some obviously i have talked about them before a lot of people getting very uptight about the fact that um kind of omitted certain characters and it extended things like that and but I, I think it was all to the benefit of the films and I, I stand by the comments I made a while back that I actually prefer the films of Lord of the Rings and I do the book I found the the books quite hard to get through and I, they didn't sim- they didn't grip me as much as the films did and of course that's the type of thing which purists will scoff at and uh, makes me sound like a bit of a kind of a philistine but you know, it's as honest as I can be about those, and I think definitely Jackson knew what made for great cinema and what to kind of add and take out of those novels, and the results kind of speak for themselves. I think they're magical films, and you know, obviously, kind of you, know, they're also Oscar lauded. You know, the the I think it was Chicago that beat Fellowship to Best Picture that year, and I mean, you know, I, I, I kind of despise the Oscars anyway, but I mean, it just shows the kind of the stupidity of the people that vote for them, but. Since um, the return of the king, Jackson's career, I think, has been kind of... It hasn't been, perhaps, as memorable as many of us were hoping it would be. Because this was, guys, well, I think that, that grounding in films, these kind of early kind of genre horror films and, you know, kind of the, the gore films that he used to make, you know, things like Bad Taste. And also, he also I think he's made some sublime films like Heavenly, um, Heavenly Creatures. But... When kind of King Kong came out, it was a film which I, was, was kind of billed as the massive event film of that year, and it, it's one that we don't really talk about anymore. And I, I've watched it a couple of times. I've got the Blu-ray, which you know, I picked up for like three quid off Amazon or something like that, and I haven't gone back to it yet. But it, it, it's one of those films which I enjoyed, I guess, to an extent. But I don't know whether or not I loved it, and I, I think a lot of people feel very, very, very much the same. It's not it just simply isn't a major film that people you know kind of like how many years it's been now kind of like six seven years something like that it, it seems to kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit and perhaps you know it might be kind of ripe for rediscovery that was followed up obviously with the lovely bones and i haven't seen that um but 
the, the reviews were savage, I seem to remember. I mean, there was a lot of one out of five reviews, and it just seemed quite surprising, really, that, you know, how can we go from kind of Lord of the Rings to kind of making films which are kind of, like, critically derided so much? So when Del Toro left and it was announced that Jackson was returning, I kind of thought this would be it was kind of a surefire hit for him, and I... I, I my, my kind of fears for what this project might have become were, were somewhat stoked when they announced that they weren't going to do just two films, which I think would have been an adequate amount just to tell the story of The Hobbit. But obviously, they've expanded it to three, and we're going to get this kind of extended story, which is going to play into The Lord of the Rings. I was a little bit sceptical, I have to be honest with you, and I'm, I'm going to kind of reserve judgment until I've seen all films, all, all three of the films, of course. But the other kind of thing that came out last year, obviously, we had this kind of high um, resolution format that he was filming on and yeah this caused alarm some of the early kind of the screenings of it have not been positive and the kind of the internet was awash with the normal bullshit of fanboys crying out and I kind of I've done my normal routine now with this which is I, I simply ignored all of this and waited for the end result and after all the toing and throwing and other nonsense having now seen the film I can at least make my own mind up so Really, the most pertinent question is, did I enjoy The Hobbit? Well, the answer to that is yes, with a number of caveats. Now, we all know the story. Indeed, the novel remains one of my favourites of all time. I remember it was read to us by a teacher at primary school. And um, I instantly uh, demanded that my parents buy it for me. I remember staying up one Friday to the kind of incredibly late time of about half past ten at night reading it because I got so into it and uh, our teacher was rather good at kind of putting on voices and kind of acting out the scenes for us and it just seemed to capture my imagination and I thought it was a kind of a magical tale and I, I, I remember getting the uh, the BBC dramatised version on tapes which I, I kind of would listen over and over again and uh, still the best voice for the goblin uh, the goblins is in there I, I will try and dig out a clip off YouTube because it's very very funny even now and of course, with the novel being so close to my heart, you come into the kind of the whole debate around adaption, and you you, you know I've discussed this in the Watchmen and you know, mentioned it before as well. I, I, you have to judge what is there, not what kind of isn't there, or what you want to be there. And Jackson and his team clearly want these to be both an event in their own right, obviously telling the story of The Hobbit, and kind of serve as kind of a prequel of sorts to The Lord of the Rings. And that's fine with me. However, despite this approach, much of the film did feel like it lacked a sense of purpose. Now, I think this can be attributed to the following reasons. Number one, the, there are a lot of scenes about character introduction and building the sense of the group dynamics, and that's fine. Obviously, you've got kind of like 13 dwarves, you've got Gandalf and Bilbo and all that kind of thing. And we need to kind of get to know these people a little bit but I certainly felt that a lot of the film especially in the opening and which I'll talk about in more detail in a bit did feel like this was kind of kind of dragging its heels a bit and this kind of feeds into my second kind of issue with the film because I think Jackson has quite right made the assumption that audiences love Middle Earth and indeed we do however what we love about Middle Earth is the compelling and engaging stories that go on in it now, no better is by kind of theory shown really, I think, in the reintroduction of Bilbo and the utterly pointless scene between him and Frodo referencing the scene in the Fellowship of the Ring when Gandalf arrives and Frodo jumps into his cart. 
There was simply no need for this whatsoever. It was redundant and I think only served to stoke our cockles and show us, you know, kind of have a swarmy, uh, swooning in nostalgic glee. You know, oh look, this is a this is the moment just before that moment in The Lord of the Rings. And I was just kind of sat there thinking, well, we don't need this. It doesn't really serve any point to the story that's about to happen. And it was, it was very sort of, I thought, quite a kind of an ill-conceived moment. I, you know, I'm, I'm currently in the process of editing my own short film, and you, you realise when you're editing these, you know, scenes that kind of you like, but there's just no need for them to be, and you have to be quite ruthless. And I think Jackson has kind of thought, well people will like seeing this because it will reference the Lord of the Rings and therefore it has a reason to be in there and I don't think that is reason enough to carry on including it. Now purists will also sneer at some of the not so much addition but the expansion of characters such as kind of Azog who is an orc whom Torin Oakenshield the lead dwarf has a vendetta against. Now I personally did not object to this character kind of being made a lot bigger. I think in the in I think he might even be in one of the appendices and it's just like a passing reference to this guy but in, in the film he's you know, a far greater character and what I thought this did actually was actually serve to show the kind of the dramatic thinness of the novel because if you read The Hobbit it is just really kind of a series of kind of miss you know kind of comical adventures really and, and perhaps it does lack a certain darker edge and a sense of danger and obviously this is what this character was there to kind of introduce but without him, I think much of this film would simply be walking from one thing to the next. And, you know, although I like these kind of Jackson trademark swirling cameras around mountains showing everyone walking, they did grow a little bit repetitive. And I think it were, were we not having this kind of sense that they, you know, there was a kind of imminent danger to the group, perhaps this would just it'd be like watch. I just watched Samsara, actually, the, the follow up to Baraka. And, you know, whilst I was watching that, I sort of thought, you know, perhaps without that kind of dramatic impetus, this was what the Hobbit would look, it would look like—a kind of you know, a, a uh, esoteric nature documentary about Middle Earth, which is of course what we, what what we don't want. We want something a little bit more kind of urgent. Now, the other thing as well I found about the character was that it it kind of did add a degree of familiarity about what was going on because obviously you got them being chased but many of these scenes simply just played out like a kind of greatest hits package from lord of the rings and i have to be honest with you it's fairly obvious that no one's going to get killed during these scenes it's fairly obvious you know how they're going to kind of end up apart from the ending i suppose but when it was kind of going on throughout the film i was kind of like thinking you know I could see why, but I also could kind of see why perhaps people may find it a little bit dull just seeing this kind of thing over and over again. Because, you know, we have fights on the moors, fights in the forest, fights in ruins, fights in cave. And although I cannot fault the filmmaking, I thought it was possibly evidence that Jackson and the team had really kind of struggled to find something more interesting to do in Middle Earth. Now the other major addition is Raghast the Brown. I kind of a, a he's a bit part character mentioned by Tolkien in the Fellowship of the Ring, and I think he's in the Shemillion as well. And he's like a forest dwelling wizard who has fossilized bird shit in his hair. And that that sounds like I'm being kind of like you know nitpicky kind of criticism, but it was quite off-putting seeing this guy because he literally has his hair is just caked in bird shit, and I'm sort of thinking that's kind of disgusting. And um, obviously he's a very kind of quirky character played by Sylvester McCoy who used to be um, 
Doctor Who, but his purpose really was to kind of shoehorn in the Sauron subplot. And I actually found this as well a little bit of a kind of unnecessary distraction, and this plot element could have easily been dealt with by using Gandalf and the rest of the group, you know, perhaps walking into these kind of ruins and Gandalf kind of telling them to kind of back off. And perhaps this character might have some kind of significance later on in the other films. And that's why I'm kind of, I, I don't really want to kind of trash it too much, but it did feel like there was a lot of padding in the film. And, you know, when you look at the runtime, I think it's like, what, two hours, kind of 40 minutes, you're kind of thinking perhaps, perhaps they didn't want, you know, they wanted this to be kind of an epic adventure and, you know, had this sort of two hours plus running time in mind but i feel possibly that that you know some time you know some minutes could have been shaved off it you know to 20 30 minutes perhaps but again you know let's wait and see i, I think that's the one thing the lord of the rings has taught us isn't it you know that these films you, you can't just watch one at one you, know, you can't just watch one and you have to watch them all and you know when we kind of see them in a more kind of holistic fashion all this kind of may make be well be maybe a little bit more palatable but I also found the dwarves quite hard to tell who was who and this will be resolved again on repeat viewings I'm more than sure of that but the kind of the kind of kinetic frenetic nature of the story it did make them kind of rather kind of rather blend into one a lot of the time and and I also think I could have done with a little bit more kind of backstory as to why they all look so different as well I, you know they can they Torin doesn't even look like a dwarf he just looks like a kind of a really he reminded me of actually a Robbie Coltrane in the um Harry Potter films but another aspect of the film that I didn't really enjoy was the fact that after I saw The Fellowship of the Ring my kind of first stop after the cinema was the music shop to buy the soundtrack and although Howard Shaw has returned I was a little bit nervous about that because you know I know he was kind of removed from King Kong and I kind of thought there'd be bad blood between him and Jackson but obviously not because you know he's back for the score but it, it's very familiar and I think lacks personality that kind of so imbued Lord of the Ring and you know, in fact listen to it again it all does sound rather the same, but with all this aside, I found the first hour of The Hobbit, I was beginning to feel a little bit uncomfortable. In short, and rather bluntly, I was bored and not really enjoying the film's jovial, if inoffensive, tone. However, when things got underway and the actual journey began, so did my appreciation of it. Indeed, the tipping point was the famous troll scene and low changed slightly still managed to raise both a smile and sense of danger and the effects at this point i also thought were absolutely incredible with the animation of the beast so good it was almost impossible to spot a flaw which really i suppose is the holy grail of special effects and clearly getting on with the story also gave the actors the chance to kind of flex their muscles and martin freeman's bilbo i think began clearly displaying the prerequisite levels of tightness and inherent bravery lurking in all bagginses. Of course, Ian McKellen shines again as Gandalf too, and I was particularly taking the intensity of Richard Armitage as Thorin Oakenshield as the leader of dwarves. Eventually, we came across Rivendell again with a welcome return of Gunglathril and Saruman and Christopher Lee, of course, and I was particularly pleased to see Christopher Lee back um, on form and his kind of denial that anything is wrong in Middle Earth clearly hinted at the U-turn his character will be making there was a kind of sense of familiarity to it all the talk of hidden danger the indecision about what to do again I think the justification of these moments may come later on but when we can sit back again and watch the films but you know I, I was kind of enjoying the kind of the foundations that were being laid for what happens in Lord of the Rings but 
The film's set piece really comes just over two thirds in when the group are forced into the mountains with the dwarves fighting goblins and Bilbo outwitting the ever creepy Gollum. Indeed, as Bilbo worked out the ring's power, I was almost begging for him to take it off and throw it away, knowing what it stirs. And Gandalf's words from the Fellowship, in which he discussed why Bilbo spared Gollum, almost produced goosebumps because you could see that moment where he thought about it and decided not to. And um, yeah, that was a very, a very profound moment. And that's, a, I think, that's a good sign as well when you're watching a film with so much kind of, so much going on it and so epic, and it's those little moments that perhaps kind of stand out the most. And as the film moved towards its conclusion, I was more than happy with what I had seen in terms of the product. I'd laughed, almost shed a tear, and I'd been blown away in some instances of the technical aspects of the film. So in theory, I should have left the cinema buoyant. Instead, however, I was a little flat, perhaps. The Hobbit is far from bad, it just feels very familiar, and narratively speaking, often redundant and lacking a sense of urgency. The best analogy I could use would be the film feels like the novel has had a steroid injection. I'm convinced that when all this is complete it will be a highly enjoyable trilogy and vital part of the Middle Earth cinema world. However, there is, of course, an elephant in the room and one which I personally believe will cloud many people's opinions of it. I saw the film on the high frame resolution IMAX 3D and HFR's look is certainly an unacquired taste. The cry will be that it does not look cinematic enough and yet I think the term cinematic doesn't come loaded with any attached gospel or set rules in stone. Cinematic is an ever-involving and I think deeply personal term. Since its inception, cinema has gone through a variety of change from silent to sound, wider aspect ratios, 3D, surround sound, the list goes on and on. I'm sure many of these were considered uncinematic at the time. HFR at 48 frames gives an incredibly clear, pristine image that to my eyes was bar none the most realistic image to have ever come before my eyes. It was jaw-dropping and literally felt like a window into another world. But I would concur with The Guardian's Peter Bradshaw who wrote that it felt like watching a very expensive television programme. Now, although I was not taken out of the story, I was left kind of slightly unclear whether or not I had kind of fully enjoyed this experience. And I've kind of toed and froed a lot since I've seen the film about it. To me, the format itself would serve, better serve documentaries. Someone like kind of Ron Frickle or even kind of, you know, the, the BBC natural history team would be the best employers of this technology. I, I think it's one of those where we're going to have to kind of wait and see and you know, let's not get too hyper about it. Now, I've no objection to the 3D in the film either. You know, the final image of the film actually left me speechless, and I thought the 3D gave a great sense of distance and scale that simply beggared belief. And certainly, this kind of this new format helped facilitate those feelings. However, I think that there seems to be this kind of quest for visual perfection and. It's not one that's being fueled by audiences either. I, I, I don't think. I, you know, there wasn't a cry. We weren't crying out for, you know, for this type of format. And you know, I've just made a, you know, the short film I've just made. We shot it on the, the on the red camera, obviously, which is the same as they used for for, for this film. And we, we shot that with like a, a 5K um, ratio. And I was watching, I was streaming some of the rushes from it from my um, Apple from my Apple Mac to my television downstairs through Apple TV. And I looked at it and I thought, oh my God, it's, it, it, it looks too clear, you know. And, and again, you know, 
you know, when I first conceived of wanting to become a filmmaker, you know, I, I didn't have that idea for kind of such a clear image in my head. But the, the kind of the upside of that is a lot of my film was shot outside and in the pouring rain and it had quite a bit of slow motion footage in it. And it looks incredible. You know, you can see individual drops of rain hitting people. And it does add this layer of detail that you just wouldn't get. And from a filmmaking perspective as well, it's the switch of a button. You know, you can go literally go, you don't have to kind of worry about the, the film kind of going through the camera too fast and getting stopped on a, you know, it's just literally one button and you're there. And that's the great thing about technology. Will this format catch on? Well, I'm more inclined to say at this stage, I believe it will remain quite a niche. Um, only set theatres can actually show the format unless there's a huge take up by filmmakers the expense of re-equipping them is going to be too great for the foreseeable future having I suppose everyone just spent a lot of money on converting up to 3D as part of an experience it was certainly unique yet in reality I'm still a little bit unsure of it however I'm not going to kind of grossly exaggerate my kind of hatred of it and you know, the amount of fucking people I've read saying things like oh I thought there was something wrong with the, project the projector and you know, oh, come on. You know, of course you didn't think that. You know, it's you. Know, oh, don't don't watch it at the cinema. You know, wait for it to come out on Blu-ray again. You know, shut up. This is this is one of the things about watching the release. There were so many ways I could. I mean, I live in Manchester, which is you know, a reasonably large city. You know, arguably, uh, the country's second city. You know, that will, a lot of people from Manchester will say the same things, but you know. I had the option of watching it on 3D IMAX, I had the option of watching it 3D just in normal theatre, um, in 2D, you know, th there were multiple options available to me. So if people had reservations about this high resolution format, I, I cannot believe that if you live in a major city, or even, you know, not even a major city I suppose, but, you know, a, a reasonably large city you know, or town that has a cinema, you, you would have had options and if you know, if, if you'd heard all this kind of negative stuff about this new frame rate, you know, why didn't you just go and watch it on 2D 24 frames? I don't understand why people do it to themselves. It's like when people watch television programs that they know are going to offend them and sit there and say, well, that offended me. Yeah, well, you knew what it was going to be about, so why did you bother? So, you know, please, you know, I'm waiting for the first... In fact, I've just thought of something which is going to make me fucking cry if it happens. Because you know, obviously people are going to hate this film with a pretend vengeance because, you know, it's a, a prequel and all that kind of thing and you know, they can get their nitpick. Um, criticisms out so let's wait and see who, who which blog is going to have the Jackson stole my childhood post on it because I swear to god if, if that does happen I think we can kind of um, wait for the apocalypse because you know this film isn't bad it's it, it's just not as great as the Lord of the Rings I think that's the problem with it and people will because of you know there's, there's some ammunition for them to have a good old moan about will find things in the film to mar their enjoyment and try and kind of mar other people's but overall i was happy with the hobbit i will i'm really looking forward to the second one i don't think personally that having to wait two years to kind of complete this trilogy was a good move by the the, the studio i think the nature of the plot and how it works would have been better served if they'd kind of released the second part in perhaps June, July, and then kind of rounded it up by Christmas. You do do a year of The Hobbit, and I, I, I guess some people, um, you know, it might be kind of too much, but you know, I'm more than certain that combined these three films will make over two and a half billion dollars. Yeah, they're going to be huge sellers, and I, I just think perhaps stretching it out over two years wasn't the best move, and I, you know that'd be my kind of my main criticism of it. But overall, you know, I'm, I know for the next you know couple of Christmases I'm going to have you know, a good day at the cinema, because this is what this was as well, you know, it's very much an event, we went out, 
you know we paid kind of that premium um, ticket price for the IMAX in Manchester if you live in Manchester and you listen to the show let me know if you do go to the IMAX because um, although I enjoy the experience the cost is getting it is quite a lot you know you know I mean I've got I've just got tickets for um, Les Miserables you know and um, 68 pounds for four people to go to the cinema it's absolutely scandalous really but you know I, I do enjoy going out you know I'm watching these films on IMAX, and it's certainly a format that I'm really enjoying. And you know, you, you can make a bit of an evening of it. And yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sure for uh, next year and the year after, it will kind of be part of our New Year's Eve rituals. Go out and watch these films and go and have a meal afterwards. So, you know, a genuine experience that you know you can't get in the home that you can get at the cinema. And after all, I think you know, that's kind of the joy of going to the cinema. So, overall, I did enjoy The Hobbit, an unexpected journey, but I don't love it yet, and I think I might do in time. From my home to my school is 1.5 kilometers. So all the time I used to run. I try so hard to stay that normal teenager, goes to school, goes home. I just happen, you know, to swim two to four hours a day. Pretty much the biggest decision of my life was just deciding to leave my family to train for my dream. I've been dreaming of becoming an Olympic champion since I was 10 years old. What are you coming to see? My son. He's in the family. He's always had a lot of the life. He just doesn't give up. That gold medal is there on the 7th of August. I need to go and get it. I know that if I just go out there, do my best, and give everything that I could possibly give, then I'll be proud of myself. What an amazing race! That was the greatest moment of my life. Okay, so here's three things that annoy me. Enforced patriotism, collective or organised fun, and members of the public being interviewed and asked their opinions on things that should be left to experts. So, London 2012 and the Olympics. The risk of enforced patriotism, collective or organised fun, and members of the public being asked their opinion were extremely high. Now, I love sport, but was a little apprehensive as to whether I would be able to take the Olympics. However, my fears were erased about 10 minutes into Danny Bonnell's stunning opening ceremony, and I spent the next two weeks glued to the television watching what I would rather biasly say was the greatest Olympics ever. Sorry, Sydney, but I think you have been well and truly beaten. For someone who was going to be indifferent to the whole thing, I could not wait to buy the soundtrack from the opening ceremony, something I can recommend to everyone in fact. And most recently we we have had first the official film of the Olympics directed by Caroline Rowland, whose promos were used as part of the original bid to get the games. First follows 12 athletes from around the world, two from each continent, taking part in their inaugural Olympic games, representing all walks of sport from gymnastics to BMX racing. The weight of expectation on them ranges from not a great deal to virtually nailed on for the top spot. Some will go home with a gold medal, others with nothing. 
But what first does is make you root for all of them and to some degree feel part of what they were experiencing. One of the reasons why they are so endearing is the total lack of pretense and personal pride in some cases taken in what they are doing, especially in the fact that they are representing their country at the Olympics. And I think you have to contrast this with some of the actions of professional footballers, people like Carlos Tevez of Manchester City Football Club. Now Carlos, who earns £250,000 a week, refused to warm up as a substitute in 2011 during the Champions League match. The apparent slight was that he felt like he was already ready and didn't need to warm up again. So Carlos then fled back to Argentina where he gave a succession of pitiful interviews in which he claimed to have been treated like a slave and disrespected by his employees, who paid him £250,000 a week and asked him to run up and down the touchline a couple of times. Or you can take Ashley Cole, formerly of Arsenal, who in his own words almost crashed his car when the club that had nurtured him his entire life only offered him a pitiful £60,000 a week. Of course Ashley did the only thing he could which was sign for another club immediately on almost treble that. Indeed, what I loved about the Olympics were the fact that the Olympians themselves seemed like real people competing for more than just an enormous sum of cash and in my mind cemented its place as bar none the greatest spectacle of human endeavour on the planet. And I just have to kind of take a quick interjection here. I had I had to leave a Facebook group because um, someone on that group was saying about how, um, you know, the whole kind of controversy surrounding doping and drugs and stuff like that. And, um, you know, what people really want to see is, you know, the kind of people running as fast as they can. You know, who cares if they're on drugs or, or not? It's the most moronic sign of an argument I've ever heard in my entire life. You know, the whole point of kind of like, you know, not being a drugs treat is that you kind of, you do, you know, you push yourself to the very limit. If you're on drugs, then it, you know, it detracts from the human achievement of that. And you know, I won't name the person, but um, you're a fucking idiot. Anyway, sport creates a sense of drama that is unparalleled. I've lost count of the amount of times that I've been watching my beloved Crystal Palace on television and I've been told to shut up and sit down by the missus as I kind of jump up from the chair to wave my arms frantically at the television a group of people playing sport kind of a couple of hundred miles away but that is what it does to us it kind of invokes a an intensity that i don't think you get um, in many walks of life and i think ronan's film kind of captures some of this kind of passion and intensity now now it's very much a product of the reality television age she has even stated that it was aimed at a teenager young adult audience which goes far to explain the style and approach she aims for it may seem a little dismissive of this of me to say, but I will elaborate some more. Modern reality television is a form, is narrative driven. For example, let's take a show like The X Factor. Now it has the appearance of being organic and real, yet it is shot and edited in almost the exact same way you would fiction. Now, how one of these kind of emotional scenes normally takes place is thus. You see a camera shot from the perspective of her friends nervously waiting as they see her coming down the road. So obviously they actually already know the fact that she's got through. Then we cut to a reverse shot of the contestant walking towards her friends. Note you won't actually see the cameraman. And then all of this is of course capped over with a Coldplay track, normally Fix You, um, at the moment where the kind of the guitar comes in. 
and a voiceover from said factory worker informing us that she will be doing this for her dead mum and the promises of untold riches that her record contract will bring will mean that she doesn't have to serve her child crisps and chips for dinner. In short, it is emotional manipulation of the highest order. Now, this may have induced a mild response in me a few years ago, but now it just leaves me sitting there dissecting the artificiality of it all. First adopts a quite similar approach. However, I was more inclined to go along with it. As indeed, in truth, I wasn't really looking or indeed hoping for anything more than what the film actually gives which doesn't really amount to much more than a series of slow-motion, musically-driven vignettes. The film uses the voiceover of the athletes to give insight into their mindset and expectation for the games, as well as their kind of motivation for doing what they're doing. These will coincide with images of them in their native lands, training, as well as perhaps even kind of the place we live. Now, the next time we see them, they're at the games, and we see these kind of massive epic shots of the stadium and kind of slow motion footage of them performing all accompanied by music or the crowd cheering now i'm not gonna i don't think it's a harsh reason to say that first is not an overly groundbreaking film in this respect and instead it relies on a lot of this kind of emotionally generic form of audio visual manipulation however it is effective to an extent by prolonging moments that would in reality take only a few math in a few seconds Ronan captures not only the inherent drama of the moment, but also the agony and ecstasy of the athlete. And make no mistake, there are winners and losers in the film, and you do feel their highs and lows. The voiceovers themselves are neither pretentious or dull, they are simply honest reflections and observations from the athletes. There's a degree of earnestness about them, which I found to be highly endearing. You get the feeling that for some, it is, you know, obviously it's the winning that matters, but simply representing their country and doing their best is a source of incredible pride to them also. It is an immensely good looking film as well. The Olympics were of course still fresh in the mind, but Roland's film manages to capture a new sense of scale and grandiosity to the proceedings. The Olympic Stadium may not have the aesthetic quality of Beijing Bird Nest Stadium, but when it is filled, it's a highly impressive arena. The velodrome too, with the intimacy of the crowd to the track, looks like something out like of rollerball and to extend the crowd cheering on the riders as they seemingly defy gravity on their way around the track. The use of slow motion in the film is huge, in fact I would say at least half of it is filmed like this, however I wincher that, as I said before, it, it does have a kind of a justification for being there. You know, mo most some of these events do take place incredibly fast, especially the cycling and the BMX racing and gymnastics and what the slow motion gives I think, it gives you a better chance to absorb the skill of the athletes. And you, know, you can you can kind of see the nuances of what they're doing, these kind of little touches. And I, it, it, in that respect, I was able to kind of get over this because excessive slow motion, I think, can get a little bit grating sometimes. But Rodens is also quite a big fan of kind of focus pulls to different pieces of action within a shot. It's no surprise, really, that you know she has a background in marketing. Indeed, that is her main vocation in life. Because this does feel like a kind of... It's an advert for the games, you know, it's to remind everyone of how great they were, but there isn't much more to first other than these kind of well-crafted scenes. And like I said, I don't think the film aspires to be anything more than that. And in a way, that's quite refreshing. I, 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 you, know, you, you, you can't say this is a pretentious film or it's a kind of, you know, a, a film that has lofty ambition. You can't say that the Canadian you know, Roland has failed in any, because she's just made a film that has a very kind of simple aim, which is to kind of inspire 
some sense of awe in us, which it does. You know, of course, I think it's the choice of the athletes that really kind of make the film. And my favourite was the Irish boxer, Katie Taylor. You see the kind of the sheer delight she induced in the legion of fans in the boxing arena. And you know, this kind of did cause a minor welling up to occur with me and kind of a sincere hope that one day I can inspire the kind of people to such a degree that she does. And that is frankly the enduring quality of first. You know, I think these are people who live lives who we can very much identify as, but what separates us from them is that they are doing this extraordinary feat, which is competing at the Olympics. And I, I think that's what Roland's set out to capture. She's tried to, I, I think, go along with the kind of, the, the tagline of the image, which was expire a generation. I certainly filmed this, I, I found this film to be incredibly inspirational. and. It doesn't break any ground. It's not kind of you know, a um, an overly deep film, or you know, has you know, it comes laden with subtext. It is very much what you see is what you get, but it works incredibly well, and I think it captures the kind of the spirit of the games, which I enjoyed so much. And you know, I do wonder, you know, perhaps this will be, um, and it will be interesting to see the kind of the legacy of these games. You know, are we going to see kind of a, a whole new generation of British athletes at Rio um, competing? You know, it certainly happened last time. I think there was a girl in the uh, the rowing who was watching the rowing on the television and decided she was going to have a go, and then four years later, you know, she's winning a gold medal. And I certainly hope that um, you know the games and indeed this film are something which people look back on and find, you know, the inspiration to go out there and do something incredible. And it doesn't need to be, you know, mean. It doesn't need to be, you know, competing at the games. You know, it's very much. I think you know even. If, even if your ambition is to learn French or something like that, you know, this film, I think, will kind of help kind of help you appreciate that those barriers that you put up can be kind of brought down and you can kind of strive for something better in your life. And certainly that was the effect it had on me. But I was slightly surprised, I suppose, with first how kind of low key the release was. It was given a simultaneous theatrical and Blu-ray release and I felt there should have been a little bit more hype surrounding it. I, you know, I, I, Certainly wasn't on any cinemas in Manchester, and I'd like to have seen it on the big screen side. It does have a, a, a very cinematic feel to it, but you can actually pick up the Blu-ray, and it's region-free, and it has fantastic picture and sound. And I, I think you can pick it up for about seven, eight pounds off Amazon.co.uk, and I, I think it's it, it's well worth getting if you like sport, and you know if you you just want to watch something which is um, fairly easygoing yet you know very, looks very good, sounds very good. I think first is a uh, certainly well worth checking out and you know perhaps it may have been a slight nostalgia for the olympics but you know i certainly uh, very much enjoyed this film and it will kind of form part of my memories of the games i would also like just to kind of um, point out as well the bbc have put out a kind of greatest hits package for the games which is a i think it's a six disc blu-ray uh, blu-ray edition um it might be five Blu-rays, six uh, DVDs, but you can pick the Blu-ray up for £15. Pounds. It's a very um, kind of Team GB-centric uh, presentation game. It does cover, you know, it doesn't only just cover the, the, the British kind of contribution. You know, it does it, it does deviate sometimes into kind of other athletes, but I was really impressed with that as well. And uh, you know, overall, the BBC's coverage of the games was fantastic, and certainly the uh, the Blu-ray they have put out is a uh, a fitting tribute to that. And it comes with the entirety of Danny Boyle's. Um, opening ceremony as well um, with a voiceover from Danny Boyle talking about kind of what he was hoping to achieve from the opening ceremony I certainly you know watching it again it's ridiculously impressive and the other thing I liked about this Blu-ray which the BBC put out it's got kind of like DCS you know, HD surround sound and things like that and I, I watched uh, when we watched the opening game I watched it on quite a small telly I was actually in a friend's uh, um, holiday caravan watching it for the evening and I watched it on the 
on a 50-inch uh, telly or you know, full surround sound. It was you know, an incredible piece of live theatre, and um, yeah, a thoroughly interesting package. So if you do, I think you, you, if you do live in Britain, you can pick that up, and it's only £15 um, for that package. So well worth checking out. Whilst preparing for the next instalment of the Ridley Scott retrospective, I sat down and watched Robin Hood again. Now, I counted in a two-minute period over 20 different shots, and I'm going to share my thoughts on that obviously at a later date, but suffice to say, it was something of a visual overload. And if you know anything about Bellatar, you will know that he is quite a big fan of long takes and having kind of been gorging myself from Ridley Scott films again, going back and watching Bellatar films was something of a visual relief to me. Take for example Santango, a film that is seven hours in length and has just 150 shots. So The Turin Horse is quite kinetic really at a 150 minutes and has 30 shots. Now the more I've come to watch his film, the more this style has both captivated me and at times frustrated me. I say frustrate because at times there is an urgency to shout hurry up at the screen. My impertinence as a viewer is no doubt the result of years of watching films where I take longer than 10 seconds is considered indulgent. But what exactly am I asking the film to hurry up? Because Tars films don't really kind of race toward anything in particular, they are not really kind of that gripping or indeed overly exciting and indeed at times you wonder if there is something really going on at all which in turn is part of their charm. To some they are an absolute ordeal to get through, not the kind of films which are perhaps made for Saturday night with a pizza. But to me Tar is another form of cinema completely, it is one that I may not necessarily get in terms of its true meaning or intellectual ambitions but I do appreciate these films and the kind of the effect they have on me and how they make me film. So Tar has announced to the world that this will be his last film. He said that he has said all he has to say with the format and I suppose the question is with this ninth film will this be a fitting epitaph? Now the inspiration came for this film in 1889 when the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche witnessed the flogging of a horse in Turin. Now apparently this event was so harrowing for him it would lead him to a kind of a nervous breakdown and shutting himself away where he'd eventually die. To some the story here would perhaps be the more harrowing demise of the philosopher but to Tyler there is seemingly more pertinent question what happened to the horse. Well in this fictionalised account the horse is the property of an impoverished farmer played by Janus Dursri and his daughter Erica Bock. The pair and the horse live on a weather-beaten farm out on the plains. The weather is unrelentingly awful with a near constant driving wind battering the farm. Over the course of six days we spend, the horse is clearly not up to the simple task of serving its masters anymore. But this is not the only thing happening. Is the world also coming to an end too? Firstly, despite the opening narration of the aforementioned story of Friedrich Nietzsche, this has nothing to do with what unfolds here, it is merely a prelude of sorts. The real story unfolds over these six days and now 
From the outset, the film is unrelentingly bleak and it only gets worse. The old man and his daughter barely exchange a word. He expects to be fed, clothed, and for her to do the lion's share of the housework. He does have a um, disability of sorts, but I'm not sure it kind of... She has to do quite everything that she has to do. I think it's more of a case he expects her to. And all of this is done in silence, and despite the occasional gripe, she simply goes about the daily routine. Dinner consists of a boiled potato, which looks like some kind of... Dinner consists of a boiled potato and what looks like some wicked strength alcohol. One day the old man notes, for the first time in 58 years, the woodworms are having a night off. The storm shows no sign of relenting either, in fact it merely gets worse. The next day a neighbour comes around and claims the local town its inhabitants are falling apart. Then the horse refuses to move and won't eat or drink and a group of gypsies arrive to steal some water from the world. The next day there is no water at all in the well, then the lamps won't light until the man and his daughter simply sit by candlelight. This being Tar's last film, it will no doubt be analysed to death and, and such deliberate pacing and composition of shots coupled with sparse dialogue, we may well perhaps feel inclined to attach greater significance than there may actually be here. As such, I can only discuss the film from the most personal and honest way. It would be dishonest of me to say that I enjoyed this film in the conventional sense, eating potatoes, mucking out a horse, dressing an old man, it doesn't sound much like the stuff of memorable cinema. Yet, the, the Turin horse was a cinematic experience seldom found. Although the film has a timeless quality, and I say timeless because I think we assume the film, because of the narration it's taking part in the 1800s, around the time of the whipping, it does, I don't think you can neatly say it certainly belongs in this period. In that respect, I think it has a timeless quality. You literally, I don't think you can literally tell when this film is taking place. You know, it could be set in the 60s, in the 80s, you know, in an incredibly bleak, impoverished part of the world. And the fact that it could be kind of set in the past, present, or, or even the future, I, I think it gives it an ambiguity, which I think makes it far more universal to an extent and Tar alluded in an interview that he felt there was something wrong with the world and when the wind howls around the farm and the means of life are stripped away from the farmer's daughter the demise that's being shown seems all the more kind of inevitable and you know this has been a particularly pertinent issue or at least um, interested to me in recent years you know I'm, I'm, I'm deeply concerned by the influence of religion and the growing disharmony with the order of the world and you know, in the Christian world people will speak quite blasely about the end times safe knowledge that they will be one of those who will be saved from the ensuing carnage the fact that they're so comfortable with this often alarms me for them of course it would be the validation and reward of their faith as an atheist however I too have my own version of the end times which in fact coincide with what the Christian world would like to believe and and to kind of explain this a little bit more I, I, I think it's highly probable that possibly in my lifetime, perhaps after that, that there will be you know, the, the chances of a large scale thermonuclear war in the Middle East caused by various kind of religious extremism. And when you kind of read kind of end time prophecies and people's modern, especially Christians, model, modern interpretation of that, you, know, you can f you can see that eventuality fitting that interpretation yet of course obviously as an atheist i don't really believe that there's going to be this afterlife you know i, I think there'll just be kind of a new era of suffering and misery and in in that respect i found the cheering horse to kind of play into those fears that i have and what's kind of more alarming about is that the protagonist of the cheering horse as i myself believe that we are unable to change the course of their impending doom at one point they pack up and try and leave in one 
long, never-ending tape, we see them disappear over the hill, only return a few minutes later. As the wind lashes them, they come back to the farm. No explanation is given for their decision to come back, but the fact of the matter is they have clearly felt they would be no better off than their current situation, which, to be frank, is pretty dire. Now, although neither character makes a reference to what is happening, there is a sad acceptance between the two that this is what there is and all there ever will be. The slow monotony in the ritual of the life is one repeated in so many of our lives. We work, eat, have two days off at the end of the week, and then we repeat. Now, perhaps it's a rather bleak view of life. It doesn't take into account the many joyful interactions that we have in between. But when reduced to such a level of brutal, brutal simplicity, there is more than a degree of recognition in the sheer repetitiveness of their lives. Miller High Vig School also reflects this theme of repetition. It was, as far as I could tell, simply the same motif over and over again, coming in and out of the story as when required. Indeed, listen carefully, and even the ever-blowing wind outside has a clear structure to it. Perhaps too subtle for some to pick up, but the exact type of reason why films like this resonate with me so much. Shot on the plains of Hungary, the landscape is desolate hellhole. Some have said this is a bad thing and that it's not correct, because obviously the films called the Turin Horseness can't possibly look like anywhere near Turin. Again, I think they're kind of missing the point. I think this is kind of an archetypal story in many respects. So this desolate place could be anywhere. And it also acts as kind of like a kind of a prison and gives a sense of dread to the film what is over the hills and you know what is actually going on and when these kind of like outsiders come into the film they often kind of bring a kind of chaos with it as do the gypsies of course tar's achingly long compositions are the stuff of cinema joygasms the long take is a directory trait that i personally love here accompanied by tar's expert blocking of the characters makes the camera feel as if it belongs in a kind of documentary type setting of course with regular dop fred kellyman the black and white photography is stunning on blu-ray especially the image was possibly one of the best i've ever seen but what captured the imagination so much was how you cannot even see that far out onto the horizon in perhaps the film's standout sequence the girl goes out to the well with the bucket in the hand as the camera tracks from her behind with the wind battering her on its own and subtracted from the film, the simple act of getting water becomes a battle against the elements and a towering example of human endeavour. Not a word is spoken yet. The image, even without any sound, would still be possibly one of the most hopeful moments I've seen in all of cinema. This is someone who is simply going to get out there. Even Indeed, even when everything around us is falling apart, a human being still has often the determination to try and survive against the odds. It may be searching for something positive in all the bleakness, but the Turin horse is if this is to be Tar's last film, leaves us with many questions and few answers. My opinion of this film may change. What you put into it is largely dependent on what type of person you are and how you feel. Given how life can throw up much in the way of surprises and challenges, it may be that seeing this film in the future leaves me feeling something entirely different. And as far as I'm concerned, it's evidence that for me this film, much like its setting, will probably go on to be a timeless masterpiece for generations to come. I won't deny I didn't particularly enjoy the Turin horse in the kind of strictest sense of the word, but my appreciation for it was immense. I will be going back and gorging myself on Bellatar films. I do own all of them, all the ones that are certainly available on DVD, and I certainly can't wait to go back to them and kind of get, you know, see them in a kind of different context, because um, the first time I saw one of his films was about seven years ago, and I'd certainly like to kind of go back to them and see if my kind of thoughts and opinions of them changed, and if you haven't got into kind of Bellatai, I'm probably not kind of um, selling him particularly well, you know, like, you know, 
endless scenes of people eating potatoes doesn't sound like you know the kind of thing that you might be overly interested in. Indeed, I wouldn't be surprised if you're not. But it's certainly a filmmaker who you know he's not the type of kind of foreign director who kind of you know Hollywood uh, was kind of itching to have come over and make films. Yeah, there's a scene in fact when one of the, one of the gypsies actually says to the daughter, you know, come away with us to America, and she, she says something like, "No, I'm staying here." And I don't know how much of that was, you know, Tar himself kind of you know perhaps a little bit of a nod to the fact that he may have had offers to come over to Hollywood it's certainly directors like him have no place in making films in that environment they're simply not conducive to mass entertainment and you know I'm glad filmmakers like him stay where they are and do what they do because you know there is that chance you're going to become the next John Woo you know which is someone who goes over there you know they get recruited on the basis you that they're this incredible visionary director and they get there and they just kind of they, they just make kind of slightly better than mediocre versions of films which you know other kind of no-name directors shepherd through and for that reason you know if this is Tar's last film I think you know, his contribution to cinema has been immense and certainly um part of me hopes certainly part of me hopes this isn't his last film but on the other hand I, I, I think it's a pretty near um, impeccable cinematic record and uh, certainly he is a director who I think will be around for many many years to come so that is going to be it for this episode of the 24 Framescast I hope you enjoyed it um, if you want to get in contact with me email me at 24framescast@gmail.com. follow me on tw- uh, twitter at 24framescast and come over to the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com there are many 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 shows in the works and many more to come and hopefully I have a, um, a number of of episodes I'd like to get out this year and um, hopefully there will be uh, a lot more content hitting the feed this year I was quite impressed with last year's amount but I still think there's more to come and I should be doing a little bit more so stick around I certainly hope and the the amount of listenership has has increased greatly in the past six months and hopefully certainly from the correspondence I've received from people um, I seem to be doing something that people enjoy so um, if you haven't please do you know spread the word about the show and I'd be immensely grateful Right, that's it, and I will be in contact soon. Many thanks. Bye.